morning and welcome to Sahaja Yoga Meditation. This is Lee Allen Fitzpatrick and I'm here with Peter Ehrfeldt on the panel, Helen Manassi, Heather Jeffries and Elizabeth Gorman and uh, we've got a little bit different program for you today. We're going to be talking about the collective unconscious, about Carl Jung's concept of collective unconscious, what it means in our life and how it actually relates to the teachings of Sahaja Yoga and what, what depth and awareness we achieve through Sahaja Yoga meditation. Carl Jung felt, based on his wide experience of the Western mind and, his, and its workings, that the Western mind is so dominated by the rational and intellectual and scientific approach to life that we often fail to come to terms with the intuitive events that just happen. And these events can be quite irrational, and yet they're a result of the spontaneous exposure to some part of our unconscious mind, and that we actually tend to shut out these intuitive prompts from the unconscious. Now. After Kundalini has been awakened through Sahaja Yoga meditation, and uh, we're going to have a chance to experience that later in the program, the, the subtle energy system within our central nervous system um, enlightens our spirit, it enlightens our brain, our central nervous system, and we're able to become more and more conscious of the workings of the unconscious. We can experience new intuitive dimensions within our awareness and develop the, the determination, really, and understanding needed to balance and accommodate this new, deeper awareness that emerges. By getting in touch and developing our connection with all these um, sometimes very puzzling forces in our life, we come to understand what reality really is and what it means to follow your heart, which in the West, as Jung pointed out, we don't do that anymore. Now, through the meditation, we introspect uh, and we can come to fully know ourselves, we come into the balance of, of what we are, who we are. And I suppose to start, um, we can, maybe Helen, could you define to us what collective unconscious actually is? Um, before we sort of talk a little bit about Jung's idea of what the collective unconscious is, um, a good example to me is like in the movie 2001, 2001 Space Odyssey, in the beginning, um, where the monkeys are, where they're living, this monolith sort of appears one day and it's like a catalyst that sparks the monkey off to realise that he can use bones as tools and through that they take this giant leap in evolution and they all progress and later on in the movie, on the moon, this monolith appears again and like this, it acts as a catalyst and um, this astronaut somehow becomes conscious of the being that he was before that was unconscious he becomes one with the universe universe or conscious of that life force in a way that he never was before so I think that's a very modern expression actually of the unconscious coming into our conscious mind and inspiring someone to make a movie um, as far as Carl Jung goes the discovery of the collective unconscious he felt was a way of liberating the spirit inside of man because for the first time you can become conscious of your own spirituality. In the same way we were saying through Sahaja Yoga meditation, you become conscious of the energy force within you. You become conscious of uh, conditionings within life, but Carl Jung called them building blocks or archetypes. Um, and they're um, the, the collective unconscious. It's where the reality, uh, human reality really exists and it's beyond time and space. It's here that creation was made and drawn. Um, it's the blueprint or the building blocks of our reality. Carl Jung called them archetypes. And they express ourselves, as you were saying, through instinct, intuition, that small, still voice within. Um, 
and Carl Jung described it as, I call it the collective unconscious because unlike the personal experience, it is not made up of individual contents, but of those that are universal and of a regular occurrence. And it's the fact that they are of a regular occurrence that is the most interesting thing. Because as with nature, nature looks random and spontaneous, but it actually is a self-sustaining, self-operating thing. So if it's that in nature, the thing I find most, is, most interesting is, then what is the collective unconscious on a larger level within our existence? Yes, um, he describes uh, the collective unconscious is sort of in layers. There's a superficial layer, our, our personal unconscious, which is our past, our memories, things that we've forgotten. And, but this rests on a deeper layer, which doesn't derive from personal experience, and it's not a personal acquisition. We're, we're actually born with it. It's universally present. And, and this is the collective unconscious, this deeper layer. Collective because this part of the unconscious is not individual, but it's universal. Everyone in the world has this same collective unconscious. Um, it, it, it guides our behavior. And these archetypes types are, are uh, like the model for, for our behavior. I was once in a Jungian workshop and I uh, heard a sand tray, a therapist, talk about how she was so surprised that when she worked with people from various cultures, like if she worked with Japanese people, often the figure of Christ or Jesus would come up. If she was working with a Buddhist person, it may be Muhammad. She found that the symbols of the various... Um, the, the, the great archetypal symbols are present in all human beings at a deep level and they belong to all races and cultures and all times. Yeah, you can see that in, in all the different cultures. In the Aboriginal culture, they, they have, for instance, a mother figure who is a creation. In the Hindu, you have Jagadamba Mahakali, who is also the great goddess mother. Egyptian mythology, they had Isis, who was a goddess of creation. And one that we're more familiar with is Gaia, the mother earth. Again, that's a great archetype of... Um, a symbol within our unconscious or this conscious, the, the archetype of the feminine. Um, one thing that Carl Jung did say, which is something that we really um, try to bring to everybody's attention through this radio program, is that our intellect has achieved the most tremendous things, but in the meantime, our spiritual dwelling has fallen into disrepair. We have completely lost touch with this collective unconscious in that we, we don't follow that small silent voice as Helen described. We, we're so much in our brain, we're so much in our intellect that um, we, have, we have been reduced to a society of stress-ridden, anxious people. We live in chaos because this, this disintegration has occurred. Our, our conscious self is not listening to the prompts of, of our natural self. Did you find that Elizabeth like I know you studied um, Jungianism a very long time ago. Did you find that that small, still voice within you was trying to give you prompts and direct you, and did you ignore it or follow it? Or? Yes, I think I, I ignored it to a certain extent because Jungian, what I think is that Jungian um, thought is very intellectual. It's very much in the head. And so 
often I would, I would, I can think of a couple of occurrences where I would have done something else if I hadn't sort of known about the Jungian thing. But because the Jungian thing was to um, get in for the for the woman was to get in touch with the animus, the male aspect. I went and did things that actually. Uh, the rest of me was saying don't do it for, um, I went to university which is a very good thing for some people but for me it wasn't and I had all these dreams which were saying don't do it don't do it but I was able to rationalize it into oh yes this was only so and so and so and so looking back on it I can see that these they were it, my my heart was telling me don't do this stuff because it's not good for you but I persisted because my head said this is what you should do <laughs> so it, uh, yeah yeah, I think, uh, Heather, your experience was a little different from what you were saying. You sort of followed, perhaps because you were looking in a different way, the prompters that um, came from the unconscious. Well, um, I think when you're seeking and you're trying to find your spirit, you get signposts along the way. And one of them was an old theosophist that I met. And if you like, in the Jungian archetypes, he was a wise old man. And he said to me, Heather, what you were looking for is that which is looking. I pondered on this for many many a long time I remember and then I thought I have to go inside that is the only way I can find what I'm looking for in our culture everything is external and we look outside and we look at the material world we've forgotten nature we've forgotten the natural world and so I was looking for a way inside and for I had the same experience as Elizabeth. I went to university and did all these things too. And I don't think it was good for me that much either in that respect. But there were other sides to it. Like it did lead me to go inside and to find the world of the archetypes of the collective unconscious. This part of us that's universal to all human beings. So that I had amazing signposts on the way and I look at it. One day I was talking to a very old Jesuit priest and I said to him that I knew I was looking for the Holy Spirit. I also knew that I needed to find the feminine. This was what Jung was always talking about, the feminine. But I wasn't sure exactly what the feminine was. I had many ideas. It was to do with the Mother Earth. It was to do with nature. But what else was it? And he held both my hands and he said, if you're interested in Jung and if you're looking for the Holy Spirit, you must know this. He said, Mary and the Holy Spirit are one and the same being. As I was a Catholic, I understood that in some level of my being. But I was a young mother at the time with small children around and I was very busy with other things as well. But that stayed with me. And then when I got interested in the Jungian process, I found the very first time I was ever handed a lump of clay and said, make something. What I made was the figure of the Great Mother. I didn't even know I'd done that at the time, but that's what I had done. And so eventually, when in my seeking, as I started looking and looking, I finally found that archetype of the Great Mother. But to my great surprise, she wasn't just an archetype in the unconscious. I thought I was looking for that in my brain somewhere, in my mind. And it wasn't there. It was actually a real being who was the Great Mother. Hmm. We have... Uh a man in England who practices hard yoga, Kieran McLaughlin, and he's written a very nice song about this this source, this uh, this ocean of of the source, and we're going to play that for right now. It's Ocean Bound.
friends I found Sometimes coincidence seems uncanny It's taken so long and just hope I'm ocean bound us up or down Shed my skin and set out on that journey It's taking so long now Don't wanna blow it now Don't know who, why or how Just hope I'm ocean bound talking a little bit before how that this collective unconscious expresses itself across the board um, independently uh, within different cultures and how 
this crops up we talked about um, the Hindu, the mother goddess um, ancient society, Egyptian the goddess of creation, Isis and the mother earth, Gaia um, these are just expressions of the collective unconscious that try and nudge us along on like our paths or our stages in evolution the way we're going at the moment modern man is very much going away from that and working science has really usurped religion or usurped God especially in the West and yet still the collective unconscious is working to make us conscious of um, its existence and its being to put us so that we are conscious of ourselves and our own being and our own place within um, the universe and the life force that is behind that. Heather, how do you think that might have expressed itself in um, in our Western culture, in any of our teachings that we've had, say, in Christianity or something like that? One thing that really struck me when I was watching a video one day of Jung speaking, he said, religion is nothing if it's not obedience to your own experience. And I'm trying to tie this in with what Helen's asked me, but I suppose cultures, other cultures that weren't so scientifically based, uh, were always obedient to their own experience. Like the Australian Aborigines had their own totem animals and they, they felt no difference between themselves and that totem animal. Or the American Indian would know if he saw an eagle that day as he was doing whatever he was doing, he would find that greatly significant and he would take notice of it. So in a way, he was always being obedient to his own experience. He was taking notice of the natural world and that's what we've come away from. So a lot of indige indigenous cultures still that are around in the world seem more in touch with themselves because they're more in touch with, with nature and with that internal voice. Do you think this is... This is why? Because they're more in contact with the archetypes of the be their being? Yes, because the, the archetypes are living for them. Uh, so it's still relevant in their everyday life? Yes, yes. I mean, Jung used to be concerned about the state of modern churches because he said that the archetypal life was dying, the numinous value was, was going because Western people had become too, too one-sided, too much on the side of materialism, of thinking and planning and doing and acting and losing what this elusive name the feminine losing that feminine quality there's a very nice um, translation called Ua Hu King it's the unknown teachings of Lao Tse and I'll just read number 38 for you because it, it completely relates to what we're talking about here why scurry about looking for the truth it vibrates in everything and every not thing right off the tip of your nose can you be still and see it in the mountain, the pine tree, in yourself? Don't imagine that you'll discover it by accumulating more knowledge. Knowledge creates doubt, and doubt makes you ravenous for more knowledge. You can't get full eating this way. The wise person dines on something more subtle. He eats the understanding that the named was born from the unnamed, that all being flows from non-being, that the describable world emanates from an indescribable source. He finds this subtle truth inside his own self and becomes completely content. So who can be still and watch the chess game of the world? The foolish are always making impulsive moves, but the wise know that victory and defeat are decided by something more subtle. They see that something perfect exists before any move is made. This subtle perfection deteriorates when artificial actions are taken. So be content not to disturb the peace. Remain quiet. 
Discover the harmony in your own being and embrace it. If you can do this, you will gain everything and the world will become healthy again. If you can't, you will be lost in the shadows forever. Mm. That, that really says how much in the West we, we are so busy, our brains are going so much that we don't have time to be quiet, to listen. And you were talking about listening to, to sign, to being aware of signposts or listening to, to the um, clues that you're given. Um, we don't, we're not quiet enough to do that. And I think that um, in other cultures around the world, they are still sufficiently in, in touch with the nature or with um, uh, their own inner quiet voice that they can hear um, that. Uh, you have the archetypal sort of thing of water as the as the feminine that comes up all around the world too. In you have it in in the Christian context as the baptism. You have it in the Kuan Yin where she pours this never ending um, water from the from the pot that she carries. Um, I'm sure there are other ones that I can't remember, but maybe you can think of something there. Can you have? <laughs> There's Sri Krishna has um, that, that's right. Sri yes, Krishna has a pot of water on the girl's head, head. that he cracks and breaks the water falls over them. That's right. And yes. it's it is like this baptism, it's yeah. some some sort of transformation. It's um the archetype of, of water which we also associate with the, with the feminine and with flowing, with nourishing, you cleansing, need water cleansing yeah. to make mm -hmm. anything grow, transform, you know, to mm -hmm. evolve. Um I think this is also a very important symbol, um that that is in our unconscious that um we're not aware of but that actually does um, guide us and, and it's in a very practical way <laughs> yes and in Sahaja Yoga there are there are these three channels that we've talked to you about before and the left side channel which actually represents the collective unconscious the symbol of that is the water it is the moon it's that cooling soothing nourishing force and that's exactly what Jung has described collective conscious unconscious as being um, Another, another thing about um, Jung was written by Lawrence Vanderpost and he was describing the energy of Carl Jung and, and described how he was actually tapping into, consciously tapping into his collective unconscious. He wrote, Moreover, Jung's energies were never exhausted, not only because he was physically strong, but because he followed the mainstream in himself. In this way, he was unlike so many of the men and women of our time who live on the capital of their energies because they find themselves embattled against their natural selves. So he just flowed with his own flow, basically. Mm. Mm. And you were telling me earlier, Elizabeth, about how um, <clears throat> something you read in the Bible years ago seemed very relevant to you when you were looking or seeking mm. for things. There was this, this um, I think it's from the Psalms, like as the heart desireth the water brook, so, so thirst is my soul after thee, O God. And this sort of um, uh, seemed to put in a nutshell this feeling of yearning and seeking and looking that I, I was looking for. I didn't know quite what I was looking for. Like Heather, I had this feeling that um, I wanted the feminine spirituality. I actually got as far as trying to set up a group of women to, to, to study, which is, looking back on it, a bit silly, but at the time, it's feminine spirituality. And we, we looked in, in many, in Jungian books, in many old mystics and, and many old writings and poetry, because and, it comes up time and time again. But although it was very interesting, in inverted commas, it didn't actually get me any further. But perhaps it was a stage. But then, when I actually got as far as getting my realization, this yearning, this thirst that I'd had for years, just went. 
It was as if I'd come home. And like it had been quenched. It had been quenched, satisfied exactly. Satisfied for you. Mm -hmm. Satisfied, yeah. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of Ali Akbar Khan's Water Lady on the Garden of Dreams CD. It's Sahaj Yoga Meditation here, and we've been talking about Collective Unconscious, Carl Jung, uh, the feminine power. Uh, that was actually uh, Power of Joy, not Water Lady. Sorry for that. We're going to um, talk a little bit about the feminine now. One thing that Sri Mataji said about Carl Jung is that he is the one who very courageously put forward this idea that there is the mother's force within us, which is a fact. We have, we have verified this on our own central nervous systems through Sahaja Yoga Meditation. We know that to be true. We had a quote earlier from Lao Tse. He also wrote another beautiful verse. The valley spirit never dies. Mm. It is the woman, primal mother. She is the root of heaven and earth. It is a veil, barely seen. Use it, it will never fail. That really sums up the 
the power of the feminine, the power of the, the archetype of, of the feminine that we've seen uh, in cultures um, through the ages as virgin mother goddess. She's shown herself to us in religion, culture, arts. Um, she's always with us even when we suppress her, ignore her or outwardly deny her existence. And yet she's so much a fabric of our very being, our connection to the inner and outer world. As the virgin we see her as purity, as the mother, the counsellor, comforter, redeemer, and as the goddess she is the power to transform. Um, through the Sahaja Yoga meditation that we do, the, the energy that rises and helps you obtain your meditation is a feminine power. Um, and it's this feminine power that, that enables you to transform. It's also this feminine power that brings you to your consciousness because as she does rise, she passes through several um, energy centers, one of which is in the heart where the spirit resides. And when that travels up and through and into your brain, you become conscious of your inner self, conscious of your very being. Um, and I know Heather and I were talking earlier about on different subtle centers, there are different colors, there are different animals, there are different expressions. Mm. Well, this relates a bit back to uh, following Jung one stage. I, I remember having a dream where I had come to the place where the deer were and I was dancing with the deer. It was probably two years later when I was practicing Sahaja Yoga meditation and I was having a beautiful meditation and could feel my heart pulsating and suddenly I remembered that the deer was the animal that represented the heart and because in the heart there's it's there that the purusha is or the flame that ignites the spirit it's like it dances fleetingly like the like the deer and that is the beginning of collective consciousness because once the flame is ignited in the heart the kundalini can then go through the throat chakra the uh, the agya chakra and the forehead and through to the fontanelle bone and out through the fontanelle bone comes this mothering energy this cool breeze of the holy spirit which makes us collectively conscious beings you were saying earlier elizabeth how when you first studied jung you um were encouraged to look at the masculine side so you went to university you did these external things have you found that since um, practicing Sahaja Yoga meditation, you've been more able to express, perhaps find that feminine, express that feminine side because of a consciousness of the Kundalini or the female power? Yes. Um, I found that my creative side, I, was, I, that I really took, started to paint and I found that that really uh, released my crea creativity in a way that I'd never been able to, to do before. Um, when I was in, in the Jungian bit, I, because of the intellect, I thought I would be, do something along uh, the lines of art therapy where you study people's paintings and then you say, it means this, you know, that sort of thing, which can be quite a useful tool at that sort of stage. And I had been to a, an art therapy workshop and uh, at the end of it, they said, okay, draw, paint a picture showing what your goal in life is. So I... Um, painted this picture of a garden full of flowers with union with God written across the bottom and at the end we all put our pictures down on the floor and um, in amongst there was mine in amongst all these ones saying 
um, manager of this uh, such and such, um, superintendent of that, um, matron of something or other. And I thought, what on earth am I doing here? This isn't, I don't, this is nothing to do with me. I don't want this. This is not what I want. And then I so happened I was staying with Heather, so I drove on to see her and uh, arrived at her house and she said, I have to tell you all about Saj Yoga. So she gave me my realization and as I said to you earlier, it was as if the thirst had been quenched. I didn't, um, and from then on I've been painting but in a totally different way from the, um, the rather heady thing that I had been started on with this, this art therapy sort of situation. Um, and also I think it um, it enhances those those qualities of um, mothering and nurturing which women do have but are perhaps not allowed to do because it's not a good thing in inverted commas you, you know it's women should should be doing all these these things so they don't have time to sort of spend time with children or to cook perhaps as much as they would like to because they also have to be chauffeurs and and work and work, work full time and do this and do that and do the other so there's no time to do that and um i've found that 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 creative sort of side of me is able to be developed more and you found it's helped you become a, a rounder person a much rounder personality and much more, more peaceful and and um not thrown by too many dramas and things right um this takes us very back to to the beginning of the program where we we explained how carl jung saw the collective unconscious i think his findings were very relevant and very important for us in modern day but at the end of the day it's the experience of the thing it's not mm. you've got to know you've got to be conscious you've got to know the collective unconscious so the question for me which is like comes to my mind and, and makes me very interested is so if there is a collective unconscious what is the being what is the life force behind that 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 generates that that makes that and it seems to me that through the awakening of the kundalini you can begin to have a connection to that and through a meditation and the awakening of that meditation you can discover what this is for yourself your own experience one step beyond Jung. Jung was very important on the path important step yeah mm -hmm. but it is a, a, a step and so i think it would be a very good thing if we had the experience of the meditation so that we can see that for ourselves and i know elizabeth you're going to take that through us now yes all right um if everybody would just like to get themselves comfortable uh just to prepare a little and settle you down we have a small uh talk excerpt of one of shimataji's lectures which we'd like you to listen to and directly after we'll go through a guided meditation so um get yourself suitably placed and we'll be back in shortly i bow to all the seekers of truth so far we have been seeking so many other things. Some felt that by seeking money we'll achieve the ultimate joy and the freedom. And some felt that if you have the power, then you will be the Lord of this universe. Some felt that if I could be 
just concerned about my limited family, about my children, it would be the most joyous thing. <clears throat> Ultimately we discover that all these are nothing but mental or emotional projections which are linear in its movement. Also we tried to find out about science, about music, about art. But any one of them on one side of our mental or emotional projection make us absolutely one-sided or we can say they put us into imbalances. And we can see the effects of that in modern times, that people are having problems which we feel have no solutions for it. And sort of we are sometimes on the verge of shocks. As a result of that, people have taken to things which are very absurd and destructive. That has added to the problems that we have already. So let us find out the truth about ourselves. Why are we here on this earth and what have we to achieve by leading this human life? And there when we start asking this question, we look back at all the great prophets and incarnations and try to understand why is it they never had these problems as we have, except that others tortured them and troubled them, killed them, poisoned them. They themselves were at peace with themselves and always thought of the benevolence of, them, of others and also of the whole collective. This kind of personalities we have seen in every country. It's not only in a particular country, but everywhere we have seen there have been such great people. What was the basis? What was their speciality? Why were they higher than us? How could they see a greater vision? For that, I say, we have to seek the truth. And the truth is within ourselves. The truth is within us lies the spirit which is reflected in our heart and that we have to bring that spirit into our attention. And the another truth is that all the living work, all the beautiful work of creation and also of our evolution, everything is done by a power which, are, which is called by different names like in Quran they call it Ruh, 
in Bible, we call it all-pervading power of God. In Sanskrit language, it's called as Brahma Chaitanya. In every scripture, it is described as a subtle energy which looks after us, which works out all that is living, which does everything that is important for us, everything that is white. This energy exists. Now when I say all these things to you, you need not take it up as the truth itself. But like scientists, you must keep your mind open. And whatever I am saying should be treated as if there is a proposition before you put like a hypothesis. This is from Edmund Whitmont's Return of the Goddess. A new mythologem is arising in our midst and asked to be integrated into our modern frame of reference. It is the myth of the ancient goddess who once ruled earth and heaven before the advent of the patriarchy and the patriarchal religions. The goddess is now returning, denied and suppressed for thousands of years of masculine domination. She comes in time of dire need. In the depths of the unconscious psyche, the ancient goddess is arising. She demands recognition and homage. If we refuse to acknowledge her, she may unleash forces of destruction. If we grant the Goddess her due, she may compassionately guide us towards transformation. If you would like the process of realization now, if you could take your shoes off, if that's possible. <coughs> Sit comfortably um, in the chair. Put your hands palm, palm upright uh, on your lap. Shut your eyes so that your attention is inward and just take a couple of deep breaths just to settle yourself. Then take your right hand and put it on your left heart and inside yourself say we, we're, we're, we're referring here to the Kundalini which is a mothering, nurturing energy so you say, Mother, am I the spirit? And you ask that question inside yourself three times. Then take your hand down on the left-hand side, just underneath your ribs, and ask the question, Mother, am I my own teacher? Then take it down to just the, um, just about the hip level, and here ask, ask the question, Mother, please make me the pure knowledge. Say that three times. This is when the Kundalini is starting to be awakened. Mother, please make me the pure knowledge. Bring your left hand, your right hand up onto the left side again. And here say, Mother, I am my own teacher. I am my own master. And then again, your right hand on your left heart and say, Mother, I am the Spirit. Say that three times, Mother, I am the Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
and take your hand up onto your shoulder between your neck and your shoulder on the left hand side and here you say mother I am not guilty at all I am not guilty at all Now put your hand across your forehead, just holding both sides of your forehead and tilt your head down a little. Here you say, Mother, I forgive everyone and I forgive myself. Say that with great sincerity from the heart. Mother, I forgive everyone and I forgive myself. Now put your hand on the back of your head and tilt your head backwards. And he say, Mother, if I have made any mistakes against my spirit, please forgive me. Just say that once, but really mean it. If I have made any mistakes against my spirit, please forgive me. Now take your hand, open it wide with the fingers pressed back, and put the palm of your hand on the fontanelle bone area towards the front of the head. Press it down firmly and rotate it in a clockwise direction, moving the scalp, not just moving your hand over your hair. Press down firmly and move the scalp in a clockwise direction and say seven times, Mother, please give me my self-realization. Mother, please give me my self-realization. Take your hand down and leave it palm upwards on your on your lap for a few moments. keep on coming just say not this thought not this thought and just let them slide through don't follow them through just allow them to go try to keep your attention at the top of your head where your hand was on the fontanelle bone and just allow yourself to be peaceful and quiet
that was the uh, process of self-realization. The meditation actually occurs as a result of this Kundalini awakening. Meditation is the state that occurs. It's not something that we do. It's something that actually happens within us on our central nervous system. Once the thoughts sort of reside, uh, uh, die away, we can, we can touch that peace and that silence within. And that's where the deepening occurs. That's where the, the cleansing of our subtle system occurs. So we'd invite everybody to go through this very simple process uh, once in the morning and one at, once at night before bed. It only takes five or ten minutes of, to, to touch this meditation in order for your growth and your deepening to occur. We'd also invite you to attend the programs that we hold regularly. Um, here we, we would like to show you simple ways of cleansing um, chakras that might have a, a bit of a harder uh, problem clearing than, than the other, the other uh, simple things we've been explaining today. You can go find out about balancing techniques, about simple cleansing techniques such as foot soaking. Um, a saltwater foot soak would, while you're meditating, is a very simple way of clearing out the day, going down to the ocean and standing in the ocean with your attention at Sasrara, another very simple way, sitting on the earth. All these sorts of things we, we use, the, the natural elements, to get in touch with this natural self of ours. So we'll thank Peter, Brown, Peter Ehrfeldt and Elizabeth Gorman, Heather Jeffries and Helen Manassi for our program today, and we'll see you again next week for Sahaja Yoga Meditation.
Oh, my God. 